Before we get started with the show, I'd like to remind everybody that we have merchandise. That's right. We opened a tea public store, so check it out for your hoodies and t-shirts and phone cases and mugs and whatever else you want to put our silly logo on. Uh, pretty soon, I hope to put some other designs up there. Right now, we just have the logo, but check it out. All right, here we go. It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Ether and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out a bunch of our other links and miscellaneous stuff in the description. Check out the link tree. Got everything under there. This week's episode, Majestic 12. All right, this is a good one. This is a big one. There, I like to do obscure topics that not many people have heard about. And once in a while, though, I like to do one of the big topics, one of the Roswells. This actually is pretty much uh, in the realm of Roswell, by the way. So it's a good one to get out of the way because... I do want to touch on Roswell eventually, but there's just so many topics surrounding it that you can't possibly get to it all in one show. So we have to do it piece by piece. This time we're doing Majestic 12, which definitely relates to the Roswell incident. And joining us only a few seconds late here, we have Agent ETA. What's up, Agent ETA? Before we actually get started on this show's topic, Let's give a shout out to our new Patreon supporters. Um, I uh, forget who we already shouted out. So what the hell? Let's just shout them all out. So we got Dick Cheese McGee. It looks like he just signed up. Var, uh, Virginia Mailman. Elsie Meemaw. Day One Comics. And Rune Ali Christensen. Welcome to the Discord, everybody. Or welcome to the Patreon, everybody. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for helping out the show. And um, also... Um, a shout out to, uh, to diamond who was just in a car accident and had broke their leg. So I hope you get better soon. Sorry to hear you broke your leg, buddy. Hope, hope that it heals up quick for you. And also, um, day one comics, who is a listener of the show also is a graphic designer and illustrator. And if you want to check out what they do, check out R U omniversal.com. And I guess they do all sorts of stuff for different things. That's why they call it Omniversal. So I just wanted to give a couple of those shout outs before we get started. So let's get started with the Majestic 12. So this is anybody unfamiliar with this topic. It's um, it's sort of like the smoking gun in ufology. Like if if you think that this is real, then it definitely proves that our government has alien bodies and crashed saucers and all that X files E type stuff. Um, I'll read, I'm going to read, I'm not going to read all the documents that we're going to talk about. Cause you know, it's a lot of reading and it would be quite, quite the episode, but I'm actually going to read that stuff as uh, like bonus content on Patreon, but I will read an excerpt from one of the documents just so everybody has an idea of what we're talking about here. Let me grab it real quick. 
to me, like that that name, Majestic Twelve, it, it sounds like a uh, a name that should be like you know assigned to like a group of superheroes or something like that. You know, like, like yeah, a, like I was I would say maybe the DC universe might be more appropriate, but yeah, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah, hey, Van, always... Vannevar Bush, man, that guy was a superhero. All right, so here's here's a paragraph from one of the documents. On the 7th of July, 1947, a secret operation was begun to assure recovery of the wreckage of the of this object for scientific study. During the course of this operation, aerial reconnaissance discovered that four small human-like beings had apparently ejected from the craft at some point before it exploded. These had fallen to earth about two miles east of the wreckage site. All four were dead and badly decomposed due to action by predators and exposure to the elements during the approximately one-week time period which had elapsed before their discovery. A special scientific team took charge of removing these bodies for study. See Attachment C. The wreckage of the craft was also removed to several different locations. See Attachment B. Civilian and military witnesses in the area were debriefed and news reporters were given the effective cover story that the object had been a misguided weather research balloon. They're talking about Roswell. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're talking about Roswell right there in that excerpt, guys. So if these documents are real, it's proof positive. It's 100% proof positive of a lot of things that people have suspected over the years. But... As you can tell by my wording, that's the kicker. Are the documents real? And that is the major, the major question we have in front of us. And what I think what we are going to talk about the most during this mm-hmm. particular episode is, are the documents real or are the skeptics correct in this case? Yeah, yeah. Well, we know the response by the government. Yeah. Um, like they said, it was just completely... bogus and not real and a fabricated document, right? Yeah. So the FBI did did a study or did research or whatever, investigation, and (laughs) they wrote wrote bogus on all the pages, or somebody did that. Maybe it was the Air Force. I don't know. So you can Mm -hmm. actually go to the FBI's website and download the documents, but they all have bogus written on them. So it's not much use because it's written in like thick marker that covers up some of the documents. So it's like, okay, well I can't even read this stuff, <laughs> but it's this bogus. And that reminded me of, um, of that CIA film for, um, that, that came, what was that? The flight, uh, what flight was it? You know, where a missile came out flight of the, of the navigator. No, that's a good movie though. <laughs> but remember we we're talking about, um, a missile over on the Eastern seaboard, a missile came out of the water and blew up a airplane. I don't know if you remember that case. That was a good but, one. The, the CIA made a video, and in the video, they said, not a missile. <laughs> that was, so that kind of reminded me of that, you know, where it's like, bogus. It's like, okay, well, how about you tell me why it's bogus? There's not a whole lot to go on there. It's just bogus. All right, well, the government's saying it's bogus, so I'm going to have to go ahead and take your word for it there, you know? But yeah, so they, they did investigate that. Um, and there, there's a there's an article I found that was, was kind of funny. It says, the FBI debunked these UFO documents in the most childish way possible by Eric Grundhauser on slate.com. I was like, dude, that's an awesome title for an article. <laughs> Cause you know, the way they did it with the writing bogus on there and like, nah, yeah. And the, the way they wrote <laughs> it, kinda it seems a little bit lazy to be honest. Yeah, it does. It says, Oh yeah, we did an internal review. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it guys. Yeah. And the, what if our, what are our findings? Bogus. 
bogus. Like, what, what other find? Yeah. What other what other findings did you have? Oh, uh, bogus. That's what we found. Yeah. You know, that's it. Not a missile. I don't that's know. To me, found. it sounds like some like really annoyed higher up who is like, really, you made me investigate this. Yeah. And he's just <laughs> writing on it, not because you know he cares about what the public thinks, but just to express how he feels about being on the project at all. Yeah, that that could be. That's a possibility. But given how much stuff that they have covered up over the years, um, who knows? Anything's possible, I think. All right. So what is the Majestic 12? The Majestic 12, sometimes abbreviated MJ-12, is a code name for a secret committee of scientists, military leaders, and government officials. This was formed in 1947 by an executive order by President Harry Truman to facilitate the recovery and investigation of alien spacecraft. We're talking, there's, there's a lot of Majestic 12 documents, but there's the original document, which was uh, the Eisenhower briefing document, abbreviated as EBD when you're reading about these things. And that was supposedly on November 18th, 1952. And the Truman Forrestal Memo, or TFM, of September 24, 1947, which is actually page 8 of the EBD document, and the Cutler Twinning Memo, or CTM, of July 14, 1954. So these are the three documents that have the best chance of being real. They started, so in 1984, Jamie Shandera received an envelope with film of an eight-page document, and that would be the EBD document. Um, it was a briefing describing MJ-12. And then in 1985, the Cutler Twinning Memo was found in the National Archives in Record Group 341, Box 189, Entry 267, by Jamie Shandera and Bill Moore. Um, and uh, the Twinning was a general and Cutler was Eisenhower's assistant. So that's who those guys are. It was a, me a memo from one to the other. Now, this document is highly interesting because it was discovered in the National Archives. However, a lot of people think it was planted there. So you go to the National Archives and they give you like a box of papers and you can go through them. And then when you're done, they take the papers back. It would be not that difficult to plant a document in there by just kind of tossing it in a box. And mm -hmm. when they come and retrieve it, as long as it's not on the top, <laughs> top of the stack, It'll be in there, you know? So that's what a lot of people think happened with that. On the other hand, maybe not. Maybe it was actually in there. We don't know for sure. We don't have proof one way or the other, but we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So later on in the 1990s, a dude named Don Berliner got a new roll of film with the SOM-1-01 Majestic 12 Group Special Operations Manual, Extraterrestrial Entities and Technology Recovery and Disposal. Now, the, SO, the SOM-101 is a whole other can of worms, and... Uh, probably won't spend too much time on this episode talking about it, but I'm, I'm probably going to go over it on like um, like an extra episode for Patreon. Uh, but that's you can do a whole episode just on that document easily. So Tim Cooper in the 90s also received documents that were related to MJ-12 on film, but um, we're not going to really talk about that all that much other than later on to say that they were thoroughly debunked and those documents are almost certainly hoaxed. I may touch on that later. We'll see. 
but yeah, so there's, in other words, over the years, there's a whole bunch of Majestic 12 documents that have popped up over time. But those three that I named, those original documents, the two original ones that arrived on the film, and the one that was found in the National Archive, those ones are most likely to be real. So let's talk about mostly those. Hey, I'm going to be right back. I'm gonna, my throat is a little parched. I'm just going to grab some water real quick. All right. While ETA is off parching his throat, I will take this time to mention that if you have a butt ton of cryptocurrency that you would like to protect from hackers and evil villains, be sure to check out the Ledger Wallet. Link in the description. <laughs> All right. That's a short one this time, but what the hell? Short and sweet. I didn't have time to write out, you know, actual advertising, so. I was driving home from work today. Yeah. And they had the morning hosts who normally do the morning show. Yeah. Doing ads for the evening, you know, before the music. Uh-huh. And I was like, I know these guys, but then the ad was so long. Hmm. It just went on and on. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of really super long ads, so I'm trying to keep it short, you know? I didn't believe it either. They were basically like, we use this product at home. Yeah. I'm like, I'm so sure you do. It's, yeah, it's hilarious when you, when you start hearing these ads that are clearly written by a marketing division somewhere, and it'll be things for like, you know, penile enhancement or whatever, and then you have, you know, people on podcasts reading this stuff, you know, like Blue Chew or whatever it is. Mattresses. <laughs> yeah. Mattresses and shavers and... All kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. Look All kinds of crazy stuff. Look at him looking at me. What's he doing? I'm back. Sorry. I back you guys. Sorry. When, when my internet came on, like that was like right when I, I was like, oh shit. All right. Let's do this. Let's see. Cause I figure you guys might have already started, even, um, even though, it, you know, you didn't. But like, uh, I figured maybe I was like, all right, well, maybe I can just jump in the middle of the episode here and just be like, hey, what's up? I back you guys. Yeah. Well, Ether was busy doing stuff. So we decided to postpone it by half an hour, hopefully, hoping that you could jump on. But, Luckily, you could. Unfortunately, Kruger is stuck at work tonight, so he will not be able to join us. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, we still have uh, the Majestic 12 documents to get to. So let's get to them. All right. So yes. Majestic 12 sounds like a, a sequel to Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> that's, <laughs> like, that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah. What are they, what are they uh, heisting this time? I don't know. It's like Ocean's Eleven meets National Treasure or something. Oh, okay. I see. So yeah, back to the documents. They, these documents say that uh, we got aliens and stuff, and there's an awful lot of debunking around these documents. In fact, a lot of, a lot of UFO believers or ufologists don't think that they're real. A lot of people, I'd say probably most people, think that they are fake documents. But Stanton Friedman actually makes some really good arguments that they're real, at least these these first three, he makes some really strong arguments and he dismisses some of what the debunkers have said. So he's, he's got this website uh, with a lot of information, a lot of good stuff on there. But unfortunately, as Stan Freeman has passed away, he's no longer with us. His website is only available on the Wayback machine. So if anybody goes looking for it, you're going to have to put it into the Wayback machine to find it. But he has some stuff in general that he talks about the debunkers, which I think is useful in general because they don't do this for just the MJ 12 documents. They do this kind of for everything. We were talking about people like Philip class and you know, guys like that. So here's what he says. 
uh, he has like a list, A, B, C, or whatever. He says, A, there are those who believe, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that no alien spacecraft have ever visited Earth. Therefore, any documents saying that they have must be false. No need to do a detailed investigation, to spend time in archives, research the people involved, etc. They must be fraudulent. B, there are those who are convinced that some UFOs are indeed alien spacecraft, but that no saucer crashed near Roswell because they haven't found any other classified documents indicating any have. Carl Flock, in his book, epitomizes this approach. If no saucer crashed at Roswell, then the documents must be fake. And point number C, there are several former military people who are convinced that the documents must be false because the style, format, details, etc. do not match what they would expect would have expected them to be based on their military service from the 1960s onwards. This ignores the many changes in office procedures, copy machines, word processors, etc., and the fact that the White House is a civilian organization, not a military one. And D, there are a lot of armchair theorists who think they can make judgments without doing any homework at all. So that's us. We're, we're armchair theorists that don't do any homework mm-hmm. at all and make judgments. Guilty. Guilty as charged. No, just kidding. But hey, it doesn't mean we're not allowed to have opinions. You know what I mean? Well, I'm definitely guilty of that today, but that's only because my internet was out. So I have <laughs> yeah. a good excuse. Damn it. Yeah. So, um, So he has uh, four basic rules for debunking of any controversial idea that he he lays out that he says this is how they work or how the debunkers work. Number one, what the public doesn't know, I won't tell them. Number two, don't bother me with the facts. My mind is made up. Number three, if one can't attack the data, attack the people, it is easier. And number four, do one's research by proclamation. Investigation is too much trouble. And, you know, I think we've seen that by the skeptics, not always, but often we see them using strange ideas and, you know, logical fallacies and things to disprove stuff rather than talking about the information at hand. Mm -hmm. So Carl Flock says that since the Majestic 12 isn't mentioned in secret documents, um, not necessarily top secret, but uh, there... He says that because it's not mentioned in any secret documents, it doesn't exist. But there are actually still classified documents from the Truman and Eisenhower administrations. And those are the administrations we're kind of talking about here. Um, Apparently, there's about 300,000 documents still classified under those administrations. And NSA classified 156 UFO documents, classification top secret umbra. I guess the NSA uses three top secret compartments, um, Umbra, Spoke, and Moray. Moray would be the first, Spoke would be the second, and Umbra would be the highest classification. So these are code words they used to indicate above top secret levels. And we know that exists. We have evidence for it on documents, although it's very rare to find them. Those are usually hidden away. And we have uh, revealed that there are 156 UFO documents, although those documents have not been released by the NSA, obviously, or we'd be talking about them too. Yeah. I don't know if stuff like that will ever get released really. I mean, if it is really going on, if we are in communications or if we have found crashed UFOs or alien technology, what have you, whichever way you want to take it, then I doubt that that would ever, I wouldn't release it. If I was in control of the information, I wouldn't want anybody to know. You know? Yeah. Anybody interested in like that hardcore document stuff, 
Go check out the Black Vault Radio, John Greenwald Jr.'s. He has a podcast and a YouTube channel. He talks about uh, documents. He does FOIA requests is is basically one of his main things. And he'll he'll say how, like, he'll do a FOIA request. And in that, it'll have a reference to a document. So he knows for a fact that the document exists. He'll do a FOIA request for that document. And then it'll come back. They'll say, whoops, we can't find it. It's lost. Sorry. That happens mm-hmm. all the time. And it happens so often that at some point you're like, really? Like, I kind of don't believe you, buddy. I think you're just making that up because it's, you know, it's top secret or whatever. How are we going to be able to prove that they're lying about it? You, you can't. They're just, you know, you just have to take their word for it. So yeah. a lot of documents have been quote unquote lost over the years, you know, if you can believe that. So during, I guess, arguing over some of this stuff, the MJ-12 documents, um, Stanton Friedman and Philip J. Class had a bet that Stanton couldn't find documents with the same Pika typeface as the Cutler Twinning memo. And he was able to find 14 such documents and won $1,000 from uh, Philip Class, which is pretty oh, awesome. Damn. Because one of, the, one of the ways... so. I'm not talking about class specifically. I've mentioned him on the show before, but quite a lot of his debunking attempts are lazy to say the best um, or outright ludicrous. For example, my favorite is the Illinois 2000 case where, you know, people report these big giant craft flying around the skies. You know, we, we did an episode on it and his, his Mm -hmm. explanation was Venus. (laughs) It's like, yeah, well, you could say a lot of things, but to say it was Venus, it's pretty dang lazy. It's pretty lazy. So yeah, I don't really yeah, I give... I don't know how the hell you can mix up the two. I mean... Yeah. It's, it's, I, I don't give a yeah. whole lot of respect to his explanations. There are there are debunkers who, while they're, they're always negative on everything, you know, the sort of making them... It's, it's hard to give anybody any credit when they're always disproving everything and they don't give any room for anything to actually be evidence They everything has to be false, you know, but there are some that actually base it on real evidence. So they, they do try to make an argument. Philip class is not one of those. He makes stuff up. He invents evidence. Um, he, you know, he, he's not reliable in my opinion at all. Well, his, his basic like, like standpoint is like, if it mentions, it mentions aliens and aliens aren't real. So it's not true. Basically. It's yeah. kind of like one of those things, right? Yeah. And there I've I've seen before people talking about that he was actually a government agent and that in other words he was a paid shill to disprove this stuff, which is why he would come mm-hmm. up with so much ridiculous stuff because he had to debunk the stuff. It was his job to debunk the stuff, so even when he didn't have a leg to stand on, he would he would grab a, you know, whatever piece of wood handy and use that as a leg kind of a deal, I guess, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. Yeah. I don't know. Bad example. <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, enough on Philip class, I guess, cause I don't want to get too negative, but, uh, it, so I have a quote here from, uh, Dr. Robert Allen Goldberg. Here's a Roswell chapter from his book enemies within. He says evidence of malfeasance was plentiful. Critics noted that the date format did not conform to governmental style. The papers carried no top secret registration number, Military titles were improperly noted and signatures appeared to be grafted onto the document. Anachronistic usages like media and impacted further betrayed the find. So here what he's talking about is these are the all the points. The we have here the bullet points of what people have used to debunk these documents. So there's a, a date format that is 
seemingly incorrect. It's not the way they normally do it. The papers did not carry a top secret registration number. That's a big red flag, especially for that document that they found in the archives. That's a huge red flag. The military titles in the documents were improperly noted and the signatures appeared to be grafted onto the document. So it looks like the signatures, there's something weird going on there, right? And he also points out the words media and impacted as he says, uh, anachronistic, but you know, he's saying basically that people didn't use those words back then, I guess. Um, so that Stan Friedman made some pretty good arguments against those points. So about the date formats. So when we're talking about this stuff, Stan Freeman actually went, traveled all over the country, going to the document archives, you know, going to the Eisenhower library and going to repositories of documents to find actual examples of documents. And if you look on his website, he's more specific than I'm going to be. I'm not going to be super specific about all the documents because I don't want to get too bogged down and all that stuff. But he found documents that had many different date formats used by Truman and Eisenhower. And he had, you know, he has got examples to prove that the ones in the MJ 12 documents are not unique. He found other examples of, of the date format like that being used. And he also looked it up and he found that historically the words media and impacted were in use at the time. So people did use those words, even if they weren't as common. So those words in and of themselves don't disprove the documents. And that's an important point because it'd be like if you found somebody said iPhone in one of those documents, that would easily disprove the document because they didn't exist back then. But same thing with these words, they were in use at the time. So we can assume that that does not disprove the document, whether or not it makes the documents a little more sus it's up to you to decide. All right. So about the secret top secret control numbers, there's, this is a, a discussion that like you could, we could probably do a whole lot on this, but um, there's a good summary here. So Ed Stewart claimed Ed Stewart's like a, a skeptical type dude. And he claimed that the, um, the RG three, four, one, the record group is a record group with nothing but declassified top secret documents. All documents in the group are filed by control numbers. If a document did not have a top secret control number, it would not have been able to be filed in RG341. Repeat, every document in RG341 is a top secret document that has been declassified and has a control number, the entire record group. So that's a direct quote from Ed Stewart. So Stan Friedman, he actually is somebody, he did a lot of legwork to investigate this stuff. He didn't, he was not one to just make statements and loosely based opinions. His opinions were based on a lot of work and that's why he's such a respected figure in the field, you know, even to this day. So Friedman says that, uh, this is totally false. RG three, four, one has 9,787 cubic feet of material, about 1,004 drawer filing cabinets. That's a lot. That's, that's, that sounds like a shit ton a metric. Shit yeah. Ton. So when you say record group, uh, you know, record group three, four, one, that could be like two boxes of documents. We don't know, but he found out the exact number and apparently it's an epic crap ton of documents. <laughs> so, um, 
A preliminary inventory shows that only a few percent, about 3% of 341 is actually top secret documents. There's all sorts of documents in there. And he was able to prove that what this other guy said was factually incorrect. And remember when I said the points earlier that Friedman was talking about, about his objections to how these skeptics usually operate? Well, here we have a real life example of why he has that opinion. So, uh, not only that, but many of the documents in 341 are still classified. And he pointed this out. And uh, Ed's response was, here's a direct quote again, My apologies to Stanton Friedman. On attempting to verify the statements I made with the source of the information, it became apparent that much what much that I had posted related to RG341 was misleading to false. I asked for clarification, which was promised, but after four days was undelivered. I felt a reply to Friedman's last message needed to be time-sensitive to be of any value. Thus, my apology to Stanton Friedman and readers of this mailing list for having posted the first paragraph of my last message, which is not supported by the facts. Unfortunately, I will not be available for further discussion on the UFO subject. I have decided there isn't anyone in this field that I really care to associate with any longer, regardless of what their opinions are. So, <laughs> um, props to him for admitting he was wrong, but also kind of a sore loser, you know? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and then Stan Freeman <laughs> said, like the kid who takes his marbles and goes home. <laughs> That's, that was a pretty sick burn back in the days, guys, in case you're not aware of that. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, uh, just to just to um, put the documents without control numbers to rest, Stan Freeman actually found examples of secret or top secret government documents in 341 that did not have control numbers. And he quoted, so, like, uh, I forget who, I didn't notate it specifically, but he quoted somebody who was like an archivist or somebody who worked with the documents who said, if every top secret document had to have a control number, we'd still be fighting world war two. In other words, there were so many secret documents. They just didn't have time to give them all control numbers and file them and do everything the way they were supposed to be done. Some of, sometimes they had to cut some corners cause there was just too much work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there's, there's another point that skeptics say doesn't make any sense. And that's that there is a document that is that's uh, referred to as top secret restricted and skeptics say that this was never used and doesn't make any sense because top secret is the highest classification and restricted is the lowest. The freedom, uh, the FOI office freedom of information office says that top secret restricted wasn't used until the Nixon administration. The Eisenhower presidential library also says that it wasn't used and um, they, so it's, it, it appears that everybody's saying that top secret restricted is not a real thing, but, uh, so it would be easy to say that piece of information alone, if that's true, that would easily disprove these documents, but good old Stan Freeman, who's never one to take anything laying down and actually checks, right? He doesn't just say, oh, well, I guess that's it. No, he actually checks. He says, is this true? Let's go have a look. See, see, he looked he saw and he found documents that were marked confidential restricted and secret restricted. He didn't find top secret restricted, but that doesn't prove that they didn't exist. 
And if confidential and secret restricted exist, that implies that top secret restricted also existed, but he just didn't find any that he, there was none that he could actually find that had been declassified. Right. Um, and he found that the general accounting office said that they found still classified documents that were top secret restricted. He just couldn't get his hands on it. So we do have evidence that top secret restricted was a thing and they were probably very highly classified documents that will probably never be declassified and have probably been quote unquote lost or burned up in an unfortunate warehouse fire or whatever they want to say, you know, whatever excuse they want to use. So it does appear that this marking is legit and does not disprove the documents. Um, and Friedman on his website asks why a forger, somebody trying to forge or hoax the documents would use such a rare and little known classification marking instead of the normal top secret. And he has a point there. If you're trying to forge documents, you're not going to use something like top secret restricted that is almost never used. You would just use top secret. It wouldn't make sense to use top secret restricted. So he does point that out and it, it doesn't prove anything. It's neither here nor there, but it is an interesting point. There is also on one of the documents, a red slant pencil marking through the classification, which is a minor detail, but it's something that somebody hoaxing or forging the documents might not have on there. That's more of like an official thing. And it would be a real easy detail to miss. There's a lot of details on the document like that, that make them seem real. Like it would be hard to catch all of these little minutia and anybody who's dug through government documents before knows what I mean. There's, there's like stuff all over these documents there. There's, you know, multiple markings and then more markings on top of the markings sometimes. So, um, there's a certain look to them and these ones, they kind of look real, you know, it's, it's kind of real. I'm, I'm hopeful that they are, you know what I mean? But yeah, so let's talk about the military ranks. So we're, what he means by the military ranks is there are, there are people on there who were like, like, let's say they were a rear admiral, but they were referred to as an admiral, right? So they, that's, that says that, okay, whoever wrote these documents was lazy. They got the ranks incorrect. But again, our good old buddy Stan Friedman said, well, maybe let's see, what can we find? What evidence can we find in these documents? He did find examples of generic ranks being used. For example, by president Eisenhower, he cites a specific document the the one or there's one by Andrew Goodpaster, who was a brigadier general. He wrote a memo about a meeting on June 27, 1958. All of the military attendees were listed by generic rank, including himself, Goodpaster, who signed the document brigadier general. But in the document, he was listed as just general. So this mm. one document is evidence that sometimes generic ranks were used. And it's, you know, so it's interesting because a lot of, you know, a lot of skeptics will say, oh, well, the ranks are incorrect. But then again, we have evidence here that incorrect ranks were often used. Well, not often, but sometimes used in documents. And there are more examples. That's just one, one example that he mentioned. So another point that people will say is that uh, Donald Menzel Donald is one of the people listed as the Majestic 12. Oh, we didn't say who was supposed to be in there yet. Let's go over. Oh, yeah. 
before we continue on the skeptical stuff, let's go over the uh, the people who were the Majestic 12, because we have 12 names listed, and these are interesting people. So we have Berkner Lloyd, who was, um, who was an American physicist and engineer. And uh, there's if you go to the blackvault.com forward slash document archive forward slash Majestic 12, there's a summary of all these people, and there's documents involving these people. Um, not necessarily Majestic 12 stuff, just documents about these people, which uh, I didn't have time to read because there's a lot of them, and it's not necessarily pertinent to this case. And then there's Bronk, uh, there's uh, Detlev, Detlev Bronk, who was um, he was an American scientist, educator, and administrator, and he's credited with establishing biophysics as a recognized discipline. So he's he's a pretty hmm. uh, pretty important scientist type person. And then there's my personal favorite is Vannevar Bush. Uh, we have to get to him at some point. We have to do an episode on this guy at some point, right? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> he was an American engineer, inventor, and science administrator whose most important contribution was as head of the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development during World War II. So not just him, but I mean the Bush family in general. There's a really interesting story with that family that we have to get to at some point. But not, yes, absolutely. not today, though. There's James Forrestal, um, who was the, the last cabinet-level U.S. Secretary of the Navy and the first United States Secretary of Defense. Pretty important dude. There's there's Gordon Gray, who was uh, an official in the government of the United States during the administrations of Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower associated with defense and national security. And there's um, uh, Roscoe Henry um, Hillen Cutter. And he was, uh, he was an admiral. He was the third director of post-World War II United States Central Intelligence Group. CIG, the third director of the CI of the Central Intelligence DCI, and the first director of the Central Intelligence Agency created by the National Security Act of 1947. Uh, this, so in other words, this this is a pretty important dude, you know. Uh, Very, yeah. Big swing and dick is was what this guy is. <laughs> is yep. I, I just said that to see if Agent Ether is really asleep over there, and she appears to be. <laughs> <laughs> Only half asleep. Only half asleep. Sorry, I was up really early. Yeah, she had a long day, guys. So you have to you have to forget Sorry, her. I go sleepy. Yeah. So Jerome Hunsaker, who was a uh, American airman, and uh, he was uh, let's see, educated at the Naval Academy in Massachusetts. Um, not really uh, that big of a dude. Apparently, his file was destroyed in uh, September twenty fourth, two thousand and four. Is what it says here on the Black Vault. Huh. There's Donald Mensel. He was a theoretical astronomer and astrophysicist. He discovered the physical properties of the solar chromosphere, uh, the chemistry of stars, and the atmosphere of Mars. And, you know, basically just, you know, astronomy dude. Pretty smart guy. Um, there is a lot of... He was a, a pretty foremost... One of the foremost debunkers. And a lot of people speculate that he was hired by, you know, the the security or um, by like the CIA or FBI or who knows what that he was on their payroll to debunk stuff. Um, mm. I tried looking for actual evidence of that. I couldn't find it. 
Maybe if I did a deeper dive, I'd be able to, but a lot of people suspect he was actually working for the government to debunk stuff. But uh, we know that he worked for the government. We don't know, at least I couldn't find specifically that that was his job to debunk UFO sightings, but maybe something, a topic for another time. Robert Montague, he was a Lieutenant General in the United States Army, and he was a Deputy Commander of Fort Bliss, Texas, and Commander of the Sandia Missile Base in New Mexico. And we have uh, Sidney um, Sydney Sowers. He was um, an Admiral and Intelligence Expert. He's a Rear Admiral Sowers, was appointed as the first Director of the Central Intelligence on January 23rd, 1946 by President Truman. So, you know, another guy who is very high up on the on the uh, command chain there uh general nathan twinning who was um he was a air force general and he was a chief of staff of the united states air force from 53 to 57 so another very important fellow there and hoyt vandenberg he was a u.s air force general and the second chief of staff and second director of the central intelligence during World War II, he was the commanding general of the 9th Air Force. So a bunch of high command. Now, you could say that this list in and of itself doesn't really prove anything because it would be fairly easy for somebody hoaxing this stuff to just go through and just sort of pick important people and say that yeah. they're on there, you know? So it doesn't necessarily prove anything, but I did want, before I continued, you know, at some point in the episode, I did want to mention who the Majestic 12 were supposed to be because... That's sort of an important detail, right? Sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure. All right. <laughs> so that's what, yeah. So, cause we're talking about Donald, Donald Mensel and a lot of people saw his name on the list and they're like, what? That guy's like a skeptic. He, why, why would he be on the majestic 12? That doesn't make any sense. He's like a hardcore skeptic, but Friedman actually found proof that Mensel was working for the CIA and the NSA and more than 30 other private companies. He worked on like classified stuff for decades. So that remember, yeah. like I said, we know he was working for like top secret stuff. We just don't know specifically what he was doing. And I was yeah. not able to find evidence that he was specifically debunking stuff for them, but you yeah, know, and someone like that, someone like that also, you never really know if you're getting the truth from somebody who has been that deeply embedded, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I, I want to be clear, by the way, that, um, when I, you know, when I say, ah, oh, those damn debunkers or I hate those people or whatever, but I do appreciate that Mensel was, he was a patriot and he worked for his country. And if he was debunking for his country, while we don't like that, on the other hand, he was doing what he thought was the right thing to do at the time. So I don't blame yeah. him for that, you know? So if that, if that was the case, I don't necessarily think he's a bad guy, but on the other hand, you know, skeptics are skeptics, you know, and they don't always make sense. So I'm going to call them out when I see stuff that doesn't make sense. All right. So, yeah, and I don't think being a skeptic is, is wrong. Like to piggyback on what you're saying, there's nothing wrong about that. Like some people come from very wildly different perspectives, you know? Yeah. And so they, they may see this, this whole topic as something that is just so unreasonable. It's just like, why, why am I even talking about this or, or what have you? And, and maybe that might be some of the motivation for some of these people also. Yeah. Well, my main problem with people, with the skeptics is they often use personal attacks. In fact, that's what they do most of the time, rather than discussing the information, they'll use attacks against witnesses 
and try to make it look like the witnesses are somehow crazy. We've talked about this a lot before on the show, you know, especially yeah. around like Project Blue Book type stuff. Where it's easier to do than actually follow the facts and, and discuss the facts. Uh, personal yeah. attacks are, are way easier. It's just it's exactly. a faster way to to get to where you want to be, you know? Yeah, you don't have to analyze radar data or whatever scientific data is available if you just say, oh, that guy's crazy anyways. So you just uh, it's so easy. <laughs> you don't have to leave your house. Yeah. Anybody could do that. It's super easy. And most of the skeptics rely on that when there's nothing else available to them. They say, ah, these people... They're just crazy. They were on drugs or whatever, you know. Usually they'll say alcohol, which I always think is hilarious. I'm like, dude, I'm drinking beer right now. I'm not seeing UFOs, you know. <laughs> like, what kind of yeah? What kind of beer are these people drinking to where they're hallucinating as, UFOs and aliens? Yeah. I want some I was of just that. But to say that, as far as I know, alcohol is not a hallucinogen. Yeah, I, I don't think right. You can hallucinate <laughs> when you're withdrawing from alcohol. From as far as I'm aware, I'm not an expert, so I don't know for sure, but. Uh-huh. I've never heard of anybody hallucinating from alcohol. That's just completely bizarre. Are you, uh, Agent Ether? Are you turning in? Yeah, a- Agent Ether is tapping out for the episode. So, peace out, Agent Ether. Thank you for joining us for the beginning of the episode. All right. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, let's see. Let me. Where was I on my notes here? Complaining about skeptics. All right. So, yeah. Anyways, Friedman found documents. Uh, the Menzel's documents, I guess, are archived somewhere. And he found doc- he found documents that prove that he worked for the CIA and the NSA. Skeptics attack this and say that anybody could have discovered those documents, imp- basically implying or saying that, you know, somebody could have gone to those document archives, discovered these documents, and then used that information to put him on the list if they were hoaxing the document, which, let's be real, that's that's a kind of a lot of work <laughs> just to put a, a name on the list. I don't think that's what yeah. somebody hoaxing would have done. They would have just picked the names of prominent people to put on the list. So uh, Stan Friedman says about this idea, some people have complained that anybody could have found out what I did about Mensel prior to the receipt of the EBD. Yes, of course, the documents were sitting at the Harvard archives, but it took three signatures, including his wife's, for me to gain access. No evidence has been claimed or put forth that anybody else had looked at the papers before I had. Some have even falsely suggested that I noted the letters to Kennedy, etc. at the readily accessible APL Mensal UFO correspondence file. They weren't there. No permission signatures were required for that access. I am reminded of people who claim I could have bought that land for a song 25 years ago, but they hadn't. So, yeah, he's referencing some other stuff there, but basically he's saying, like, it wasn't that easy. You couldn't just go look at these papers. You had to get, you had to jump through a lot of hoops, and mm-hmm. it didn't appear that anybody else had jumped through those hoops. Anything's possible, I suppose, but again, it would be a tremendous amount of work for a hoaxer to do. Somebody hoaxing these documents would not have done that work. There's no way. they They would have probably just picked names at random or picked names of generals and scientists or whatever, you know? So I guess the, the underlying message here is that the, the fact that Mensel was included on the list is highly interesting. That's like, cause we know he was working for the CIA, but that was not common knowledge when the documents were released, you know? Uh So that's highly interesting. And it's kind of makes you lean towards the documents being real. But all right, so let's move on to our next topic of, uh, you know, of con- contra- controversy. How do they say it? 
controversy. Controversy? Whatever. Controversy? Yeah, I was trying to do it. Like, how do the English people say it? Controversy. They say it weird. Controversy. Yeah. I forget how Aluminium. They, yeah. Uh, yeah. Aluminium. Dude, they're adding adding consonants there. Those <laughs> aren't all there. <laughs> Stop saying it like that. <laughs> all right. The, uh, um, so Kevin Randall is a UFO researcher, and he said that there is no mention of the Majestic 12 doc or the Majestic 12 anywhere in any of Mensel's documents, suggesting that if Mensel had been associated with them, that there would have been evidence somewhere in the documents. And he said that nowhere did he, meaning Friedman, find any mention of MJ-12 in the papers and records. There are no marginal notes, no oblique references, no highly placed correspondence that suggests, mentions, identifies, or confirms the existence of MJ-12 or Mensel's connections to it. And this is uh, Friedman response by saying the absence of evidence uh, is not evidence of absence, right? That's he liked that saying. Yeah, yeah. But we're talking about, you know, probably the most top secret, like even more highly classified than what the nuclear program was, like the most classified thing ever. If Menzel was involved, he wouldn't have just had documents lying around. This stuff would be very tightly controlled. So he wouldn't be making notes in the margins or oblique references. He would be very tight lipped about it. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's sort of, I don't know. This is sort of Kevin Randall is, um, he, you know, he has a lot of good stuff to say. Sometimes I'm not trying to knock him specifically, but in this case, I think Friedman is correct in that, you know, it wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily find references in those documents, any, any documents, referring to this would still be classified. So they, they wouldn't be in the files at Harvard. They wouldn't just be lying around his house to be found. They would be, yeah. they would be hidden away, you know? So that's not, that's not really proof of anything. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about the Truman Forrestal memo. So this was, this is a memo that was, um, skeptics claimed that it was typed on a typewriter from the 1960s and that the signature was identical to one from another memo, uh, the, a memo from Truman to Vannevar Bush. But the, these claims were made by somebody just kind of looking at it, like they didn't actually check anything, they just kind of looked at it. And this, this was made by, these, these claims were made by um, Philip Class. So it's like, eh, should we even really talk about it if he's the one claiming this? Not really, but well, I guess let's give it a go. Mm-hmm. So um, Stan Freeman talked to a dude named James A. Black, who's like an expert in this kind of stuff. And he determined that the letter was probably typed on an Underwood typewriter from about 1940. And he said the signature appeared to be a reproduction, not an original signature, based on the fact that like the ink didn't seem to fade or whatever. Basically, it looked like a photocopy or something. But mm-hmm. there would have been copies of the memo sent to different people and they wouldn't have all been individually signed. The first one would have been signed. So the the signature doesn't necessarily prove anything. It just proves that this might have been one of the reproductions, not the original document, right? And um, also, he did some careful examination shows that the signature is not an exact match to the one that they're saying it is. There are slight differences. And Stan Freeman points out that at this time, um, the president was doing... It was signing so much stuff, you know, like hundreds of things a day. So he would be signing all day long. So he'd, he'd be signing things. The argument could be said that his signatures from one thing to another could be very, very similar if you're signing things that often, you know, 
But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that that part is debatable how similar the signatures could be. But according now, this is one part of the analysis I didn't do myself. Now that I'm thinking about it, I wish I had compared those two signatures. I didn't. But um, according to Stanton Friedman, those signatures are not identical. There are subtle differences between them. All right, let's move on to the numerical part of the date, uh, which is offset from September and done with a different typewriter. Remember earlier we mentioned that one of the dates was a little funky, like the format or whatever. Now that he did find other examples of this date format, but also in this specific case, the numerical part of the date is offset from September and is done with a different typewriter. And there's a period after the date. Vannevar Bush's office always put a period after the date. Truman's office rarely used that. Sometimes he did, but rarely didn't. So this suggests that, you know, the office put that date on, on the document after they received it or something. It's kind of a, kind of a strange detail, but, um, so somebody, uh, George Elsie, who had worked for both Roosevelt and Truman said that the document looked like a real document. He didn't see anything that suggested it was fake. And Stan Freeman points out that why would a forger use two different typewriters to forge a document and use a period after the date? It doesn't really make sense. They would have just done whatever the standard was, which wasn't using the period after the date. So using the the two different typewriters suggests, again, like I said, it suggests that um, it was done by two different offices, sort of. But who knows? It's a minor detail, and maybe it doesn't mean anything at all. But it doesn't probably doesn't disprove the document, which is Stanton Friedman's point. All right, now, in one of his books, Stanton Friedman has a list of 37 facts that were not known to be true until after the documents were released. And this suggests that a hoaxer would not have known these details to put them into the documents. So he uses an example. So the CTM document does not have a signature from Cutler, who was out of the country at the date of the memo, but had left instructions to keep things moving out of his basket in his absence. So the the point here is that people would have known that Cutler was out of the country you could have found that information out if you did a a, you know a deep dive but the hoaxer would not have known that he told people to keep things moving out of his basket because that document was not released until after the mj12 documents so the the hoaxer would not have known that he wouldn't have signed that memo right in other words the hoaxer would have probably put a signature on that document or hoaxed the signature on there you know Mm-hmm. So the um, the Stan Friedman says that the document proving this took him two years to get out of classification review when he requested it. So this was totally unknown. Maybe a minor detail. It doesn't necessarily prove the documents are real, but it's a pretty compelling argument that the fact that that document is not signed doesn't disprove it either. And it does line up with other facts of the case that he was able to uncover. It fits. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It it makes it just sort of adds a little bit. It kind of makes you go, hmm, that's interesting. So there's also a newly declassified box of General Twinning's papers. This is this is according to Stan Freeman. So by newly, this is when he wrote this was a number of years ago. But anyways, it included a flight log that shows that he flew to New Mexico from Dayton on July 7, 1947. This is also confirmed by the pilot's flight log. Now, this is, this is in the Majestic 12 documents, but a hoaxer wouldn't have known about that date because those documents were not declassified at the time 
that the MJ-12 documents were released. So that's another detail. And he has, like I said, he has 37 of these, but we won't go over all of them. That's just a couple of examples of things that kind of like, is that proof? I don't know, but it's not something that a hoaxer would have known unless the hoaxer was working from the inside, of course. And in which case, it would, this would be a very high effort, effort hoax, and you'd have to wonder why they were hoaxed in the first place. But mm-hmm. uh, so I mentioned earlier that Tim Cooper had received some Majestic 12 documents, but Stanton Freeman proves that they are fake. Like he definitively proves that they are fake. He goes through and finds which documents certain things are copied and pasted from, and you know certain elements that are obviously faked and that kind of stuff. So that that I don't want to talk about those because they're provably fake. I just wanted to mention them because they are a part of the Majestic Twelve discussion, but they're you know they're not really super reliable. Um, you know, but what the interesting thing to discuss is. Why were these sent to Tim Cooper, who was a you know UFO researcher, guy who ended this stuff? Were they sent to the these fake documents? Were they sent um, as a distraction? And it reminded me of the Phoenix Lights, Lights case. Remember the Phoenix Lights? You had oh, two yeah. events, right? You had the first event, which was the UFO, and then you had the later event, which was the military dropping flares in a triangle formation, <laughs> which mm-hmm. looked an awful lot like they were trying to cover up the previous event. So is this the same thing? Did somebody in government forge these documents to try to make the previous documents look fake as well? Maybe. I don't know. We don't have any proof of that. We can only speculate, right? Um, uh, maybe it was possible. Yeah. Maybe it was part of a psyop. Stan Friedman suggests that maybe these documents were forged. The, the ones that Tim Cooper got in the nineties, maybe those were forged to waste the time and money and effort of researchers because they'd have to spend all this time chasing down and researching to figure out if these documents are real or not. And remember Stan Freeman, he would travel to these document archives, which were not, and to my knowledge still are not available online. You have to physically go there and that's a lot of work to go there and dig through all these documents, boxes and boxes, thousands and thousands of documents looking for these clues. It's amazing what he was able to accomplish actually by doing this, but it took a significant effort on his part. And there's not that many people willing to put forth that acumen, that what am I saying? There's not that many people willing to put forth that kind of an effort to prove or disprove this stuff. You know what I mean? So that's mm-hmm. his idea is that these documents are just trying to waste their time and money because most of us, we're not rich. We can't just go flying around the country and, you know, staying in hotels and whatever that takes resources. There's a yeah. limit to how much you could do that. No well, resources and free time. Yeah. You know, who has that kind of free time, you know? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so that's, you know, that's his idea. Maybe it was a psyop for the Russians to distract them from real, you know, like top secret airplanes or whatever. There's any number of ideas as to why these documents might be hoaxed by the government. Um, it could even be hoaxed by, let's say, let's go, okay, let's play devil's advocate. What if Stanton Freeman hoaxed, hoaxed these documents and sent them to Tim Cooper? Because let's be real, he wrote books about this stuff all the time. Well, not all the time, but he has multiple books about these topics. So him sending out documents could serve, you know, his book sales. But on the other hand, I guess he did personally debunk them. So maybe not, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so in Stanton Freeman's estimation, he says that the EBD, TFM, and CTM documents are probably real. And he thinks that there's a chance, there's a good chance that the SOM 101 is real as well. 
And he thinks that the Cooper documents and other documents are fake. And that's, you know, in summary, what he thinks. Um, now, personally, I think that the SOM, the, the Psalm 101 documents, I feel very strongly that that manual is fake. So I disagree with Stan Freeman here. And there's good reasons for that, which we won't go into here because that, I mean, that's a whole other episode, but it's a, it's a manual on what to do about saucers. I'll, I'll go over it on a bonus episode for Patreon, but um, th- there have been some analyses that point out some pretty glaring problems with it. I'll just leave it at that and say that I do believe the skeptics in this case, they make a very good case that this is not a real document. So I don't believe that one, but I think Stan Freeman makes a really strong case for those three documents. Um, I'm not like hundred percent convinced. I'm still kind of on the fence, but I used to be completely skeptical about the majestic 12 documents until I read Stan Freeman's argument. That's why I spent so much time on this episode talking about the arguments, not the documents themselves. You know, the documents say that the governments have aliens. Okay. That's, I think that's all we really need to say about those, but whether or not they're real, that's, that's really what we're talking about here. Cause if that's they're the real question, if those documents are real, that's our smoking gun right there. That is the disclosure yeah. that everybody's been looking for. And I think that, um, I think that's plausible that they could be real. I think it's, it's really plausible. San Friedman makes a very strong argument and points out some things that kind of make me kind of lean more towards them being real. Actually, you know, I'm still not hundred percent convinced, but before I didn't believe that they were real at all. And now I think it's possible. So mm-hmm. I don't know who knows. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there along with you. I think some of these documents absolutely could be real. And then other ones have been placed, you know, uh, to create like a disinformation, you know what I mean? To, to take away from the credibility of other documents. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, now, one problem that Stanton Freeman didn't really resolve is that uh, there's the problem of where the documents came from in the first place. And that question, un- that question unanswered is a problem. Because if we don't know who supplied the documents, then we don't know for sure that they were real. You know, if we knew that they came from somebody within the military, you know, then that would be really good evidence that they were real. So that's a question mark. But that doesn't necessarily prove that they were fake either. That's just sort of, you know, anytime you don't have a good lineage for a document, it's automatically suspicious, you know? So unfortunately... That's still the case with these documents, but well, it's like in the court of law, when you have evidence, you have to have a, a a record of the chain of of evidence. You know, where has the evidence been? Has it, has it had any opportunity to be falsified or or changed or whatever? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, it'd be nice to have that, you know, for sure. That would definitely create some um, legitimacy to some of these documents, but we don't have that necessarily. So that's one of the problems, you know? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I guess that's, you know, that, that leaves us where it leaves us. Unfortunately, we don't know for sure that the documents are real, but we have some pretty compelling evidence that they are. And we also have some pretty strong arguments that they're not, you know, you can look either way. So I don't know. I'm still, I still don't know about these, but I still find them fascinating. I'm going to read through these documents on Patreon for people who are interested in that sort of thing. I I imagine that only like the hardcore nerds like myself are going to be on the Patreon. So that's, you know, I'm guessing that people might want to hear something more about specifically what's in the documents. 
So I'll go over that. But other than that, I think that's pretty much about all we have this time for you. Um, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by checking out the affiliate link in the description. This time we've got some Stan Freeman books. That's right. He's got a lot of books about the Majestic 12 and some other things. He was a really good researcher and he puts his money where his mouth is, so to speak. And uh, one, there's a reason why he's such a big name in ufology, because he didn't just make stuff up or speculate. He actually put a lot of work into what he said. So whether or not we agree with him 100% of the time, his opinion is definitely worth checking out. So check that out. Links in the description. And uh, yeah, so that's about all, all we got for you, I guess. So thanks for listening. And would you like to give us a keep it strange agent ETA? Hell yeah. Uh, you know, thanks for listening. I appreciate all you guys and keep that shit strange. <laughs>